so much. What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you people? Hello again everyone and welcome to episode 11 of the Film 89 podcast. My name is Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk and unfortunately, or depending on how you look at it, fortunately, the rest of the gang are not going to be here today. Steve, Richie, Neil, Jim, you've just got me today, but you know, I'm not, not going to leave you hanging. So as you've seen from the description, I've got a very special guest today. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to introduce author Mark O'Connell. Hello Mark and welcome to Film 89. Hello. Well, uh, thank you. Hello. Well, welcome all listeners. So today, Mark, we're going to be discussing your new book, uh, Watching Skies, Star Wars, Spielberg and Us, which was released, is it two weeks ago now? Uh, yes, the book came out just at the end of May, so more or less June. So it's um, perfect time for the summer blockbuster season. Which, yeah, obviously something which features very heavily in this book. Um, b- before we, we, we start uh, about the new book, Mark, just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you came into writing and you know anything else you feel is relevant. Yeah, sure. Well, my writing background started when I was I did a film studies course. Uh, that was my degree at university. And whilst I was doing that, I started a bit of screenwriting and had a bit of early success with a, f- a few Channel 5 and Channel 4 short uh, screenplay projects. They were produced and that was a, a great thing at the time. And then I started to do a lot of comedy writing uh, when I left university and got myself representation and I've written for all sorts of platforms, Edinburgh Fringe, sketch shows, uh, and all the time I was doing that, I was developing my own stuff, and then someone did say to me, why don't you do a book, and I I always wanted to do a Bond book to begin with, and uh, that's how Catching Bullets, my last book, came about, and then then someone said, could you do the same for Star Wars, and I sort of secretly wanted to, so I I sort of agreed very quickly, so that's sort of my background, but I also do a lot of, uh, do a bit of travel writing, uh, a bit of LGBT stuff. Yeah, I sort of always say I'm a pop culture pundit for hire. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Mark, the book, well, both of them really, because I would imagine, mm. I, I've not read the Bond book yet, I, I'm going to. It's both part reference and, is it, is, it, is it fair to say part reference and part autobiographical? Yes, yeah, I sort of say, I describe it as a memoir through cinema, but Unlike perhaps the Bond book, this is a, all of our memoirs. This is all our memories because we all had these same silly little Star Wars kid moments. So, yeah, it's a memoir through cinema. How, how long has this book been in gestation and, and how, how long from start to finish was the writing process up to the, the point where it was published? Um, I initially sort of pitched it to the History Press at the beginning of 2016 now. And um, it got very quickly accepted, which was lovely. Uh, so we got commissioned there. And I, I suppose it took about a year... Once I got my head around what it was and what the structure of it was, I'd say about a year. I finished it about May last year, actually, and it sort of took that time to get the, the post-production and to get all the, uh, the elements and the branding in place. So, Mark, obviously I've read the book, which, like I say, it, it is autobiographical, very personal. 
But for, for our listeners who don't know you, so you're a Generation Xer, as I am, yeah? You born around about 75, 76? I am, yeah, 75. I do look younger, you are right. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I was born, I was actually born when Jaws was still uh, in the US box office chart, which I, I quite like the uh, sort of poetry of that. So uh-huh. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm 75, I'm Generation whatever they're always loose definitions so 75 onwards so I, my background i didn't obviously see star wars at the cinema first time round. i didn't even see empire at the cinema first time round. um return of the jedi was my first star wars movie in 83 at our local uh, cinema but i was heavily aware of these films they were just everywhere at the time i remember the whole dolby whole dolby stereo movement that came in slightly via star wars but also via close encounters i remember that that little logo being everywhere and being fascinated by this film and all its lights. So those films, you know, I I wanted to do a book about those films, particularly because my generation, we were so lucky to have those films. They weren't just great films that happened to be in our childhoods. They're really leading punctuation points in the history of 20th century cinemas. You know, the book looks at sort of 75 to 84 ish but we also bring in uh, force awakens and um, bring things full circle and uh, look at ghostbusters old and new likewise man of steel superman old and new um, but eight, uh, 75 to 84 that's the sort of window but as i always say it was a window that let in a hell of a lot of really good cinematic light it did mark and i think there you you've i think you've probably answered the first question i was going to bring up for you because at the moment we're experiencing it's a very particular trend and interest in all things 80s and, and general 80s nostalgia mm. you know even though this website's called film 89 it's um that's a great that's a great title by the way I, yeah it threw me at first but i thought actually that's a really I, I love that yeah the sort of genesis of that title was um you know years ago now before the website before we go into podcasting writing anything like that neil gaskin who's, who's also part of the team who i'm old friends with mm-hmm. we were just sat there one day and i said to neil neil if we ever had a website of our own Bear in mind, we're kids of the 70s and 80s. We're very much sort of obsessed with, like, nostalgia and things like that. What would you call the website? And literally, I think it was without any hesitation, he just turned to me just said, Film 89. Yeah. Obviously, being an homage to, to Barry Norman's long-running BBC film show, it, it you know, that was... It, it just stuck, and, and we were always going to call the site that. So when your book came along, and, and as I said to you, Mark, after you first emailed me, I, I read the blurb on the back of the book, and it just sold me. I then took a snapshot of it. I sent it to the rest of the guys on the team. Uh, we're all Generation Xs. We're all pretty much you know in our late 30s, early 40s. The rest of the guys read it, and they were like, I'm, I'm going to borrow that book as soon as you finished it. Oh, it's, oh So, yeah, a few of them have already got it on order. And the blurb on the back of the book sells it to our generation like like nothing else. Yes, yeah, no, I was I was very keen on getting that blurb right. You, yeah, um, you've got it yeah. absolutely spot on because you know the book isn't just about your love of film; it's about this sort of proliferation of of merchandise that we saw coming in the wake of all of these films in in the the late seventies and early eighties. And, and I think it's a very unique time in cinema, and you capture that perfectly in the in in the book. You know, the, the question was going to be, why do you think that this particular era is so fondly remembered? And you know, I think it is because, like you say, it's a uh, it's a very specific time in film where all of these things like pop culture, film, and merchandising and toys all sort of came together like they never had before. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a mix of different things. Sort of this 80s nostalgia is a crossroads of different elements. One being that that generation are now old enough and they're all, you know, 
I think whatever generation grows up, they're quite keen on the films that they had around. You know, I feel slightly sorry for the, the Power Rangers generation. But uh, so now the, the people that were born in that era, the people like me, like you, who were, grew up on that plastic Star Wars world, they're now old enough and some of them are clever enough and artistic enough to be making the decisions to be to commissioning stuff. So then we that's how we get Stranger Things uh, and why the new Star Wars have gone for that slight nostalgic edge with perhaps Solo and Ready Player One. So it's so that there's that. I don't know. I think it's also oddly all the all the things that we didn't have in the 80s is what's keeping the 80s going. So like the Internet, memes, GIFs, YouTube, Netflix, all these things that we really, really seriously never had. They're they're sort of feeding and nurturing this era. It's probably cyclical. We'll probably perhaps seven, eight years time will be nostalgic about the 70s again or the 90s. Um, it's yes, yeah, often wheels within wheels. But also, let's defend these films. They were good pieces of cinema. I was sort of very conscious of where do I end the, the, the loose time frame of the book? Because I, I wanted to do the Goonies, but there just wasn't space. And, I, you know, maybe save that for another another book. And I realized that around the time of 84, 85, 80 cinema changed. Sci-fi cinema changed. It became perhaps we lost that element of awe and fantasy so suddenly we had films like short circuit um which were a bit more military and a bit more grounded in reality so that's sort of why the, the book loosely ends around 84 but yeah i i find the 80s fast sorry the fascination in 80s intriguing and um it's great we all saw last week that hmv brought out these uh, dozen or so 80s key movies but they've They've put the Blu-rays and the DVDs in like these deliberately faux CIC video boxes, which I think is such a, a genius touch. Um, I really hope someone somewhere has a Ready Player One VHS box ready to go when they sell that in a couple of months. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and something you just said there about you, you highlight in the book this particular period from 1975 to 1984, roughly. Although you do yes. go, you, you do yeah. go, you go well either side of that. You make reference, yeah, because to... yeah, because Jaws didn't happen overnight. There's there's a 10, 15 year movie cycle feeding into Jaws as well. And also, likewise, afterwards, these films didn't just stop. Obviously, we had Force Awakens, uh, Man of Steel, so Ghostbusters three, if we're allowed to call it that. Yeah, so it's a it's a loose window of time. Yeah, and I. I think there was this period of film that the, the the one that you've highlighted where there was sort of an air of wonder about the films that they were making and i think as you covered in the book you go on about that the films of a, of a particular time are undoubtedly influenced by the the world politics of that time and obviously you you had come the end of the vietnam war and you had all sorts of things in america like watergate where um faith mm. in the government and those in power much like we're seeing now in america again yeah, yeah. That, that that had an influence initially on the type of films that were being made the sort of um gritty and uh, political thrillers of the of the early to mid 70s and then i think jaws came along uh, you know and it wasn't just jaws obviously it was jaws star mm. wars and close encounters and it sort of burst that bubble of cynicism and yes. sort of opened up this era of of sort of wide-eyed wonderment, which mm. covers the period in your book. But then, like you say, something came along to stop that. And I think maybe then, again, politics stepped in. And if you look at a lot of the films from the mid-80s onwards, films like uh, you know Rocky IV, Robocop, films like that, they're very much influenced by the, the politics of Reagan's America of the time, films like Wall Street again, mm-hmm. which yes. whilst they're not sort, you know, in any way aimed at, at, at children... 
there was you know they still be- became sort of part of pop culture much like you know films like Top Gun with um, you know his military stance and again back in the 80s the Cold War being what it was I, d- I definitely think the politics sort of bled into films and sort of put a stop to this sort of wild-eyed period that you know that you cover in the book yes yeah absolutely I agree with all of that and also perhaps by the mid to late 80s that whole sort of genre if you want to call it that of wealth and accoutrements and and being rich that seemed to take over so when you know close encounters comes out in 77 it's it's a sort of blue collar world and you et's almost a blue collar world not quite but and then suddenly yeah you've got these films like you're right like wall street that the accoutrements of wealth suddenly become well that although that was actually a th- i mean i actually do talk about that in the book how at the 80s that sort of white goods era it was just as important to have a, a vhs copy of star wars or et as it was to have a cordless phone or a sunroof so oddly, the, the proliferation of the home cinema market did come itself on the back of that wealth. And we, we had more money, you know, to buy sort of things like you know, luxuries, like videos. And, you know, people didn't buy films. They didn't own them. Uh, not, not on mass anyway. Yeah, one thing that you you've, you seem to have a remarkable talent for, Mark. Now, I'm, I'm probably a year or, or less younger than you, but... There were so many things that you brought up in the book, which you seem to have vivid recollections for. And and as soon as I was reading them, it just sparked something that's like way back in my distant memory. Things that I had almost not so much forgotten about, but wasn't consciously recalling anymore. Little specific details about, well, mainly about how it was sort of like both a time of wonder and from a technological point of view, it was the dark times. Now we're used to things like Netflix and, and Amazon Prime and Sky where we can just, you know, press a couple of buttons, we've got a film downloaded there in front of us. But back in it, in what you describe as the watching Skies era, well, I, I, I don't know how we coped. We, no. <laughs> like you say, I, yeah. you, you, you weren't able to see the Star Wars films in order. That actually made me think, well, you know, I don't actually think I saw them in order. The current generation, the, you know, the, 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 the internet generation they're not they're not gonna have any sort of idea how, how bad we had it in a way i know yeah i i, I hate being well I, and i don't want to be sort of the old man on the <laughs> rocking chair sat on the front porch saying vinyl was best vhs that's where it was at no i'm not going to be like that but yes i mean i sort of think how how did we even become film fans back in the day well i'll tell you how we became film fans the films themselves were good were solid well-crafted pieces of entertainment so that was a you know that was a really good starting point uh, but yeah i you wouldn't see a film poster like this whole thing of like just this week creed 2 is trailered and its teaser poster is out and i'm quite a rocky fan actually on the sides and we would never get we would never see the movie posters unless they were in the foyer of the, the movie houses when we were seeing something else you, you wouldn't get these sort of shared there was no twitter there was no facebook there was no youtube so you you wouldn't you'd, you'd have to go to the cinema to see a trailer and then run the just the gamble of the film you wanted to see the trailer for it might be featured in in front of uh, the cat from outer space or the or uh, peter pan reissue so yeah uh, and i think then that was all slightly helped by the vhs i one of the lines i say early, early on in the book is my parents generation that's they went to the movies our generation the movies came to us whether it was through the toys through vhs through home video through bedspreads yes kids were playing you know were playing at being roy rogers you know but way back in the dawn of cinema yeah and what what struck me as just you know remarkable is your recollection of specific things like the, the specific model of the first vhs recorder that your family ever had and then yeah, that- well, we had 
we had it for years and I remember I found it on, on Google and I was and I remember throwing it away as well when my parents moved to the house. We hadn't used it for years. I was, I, as soon as I threw it in that tip, I was like, I should have kept that because it was this glorious, chunky sort of flight recorder sized monument to home video. Yeah, uh, one of the things in the book as well, and I don't want to bring it up because people who no, read the book, it. I'd rather them discover themselves, but there's no skirting around this. Our generation were brought up on this this incredible wave of merchandising, which I think it's safe to say George Lucas brought in with Star Wars when he made that that very clever deal where he was going to have a cut of the merchandising, or sorry, have actually exclusive rights to the merchandising. And yes, indeed. They, they would yeah. fall all under his ownership. Incredible Bit of, bit of foresight from George Lucas you know I think he does get a lot of stick but what George Lucas is is a very clever ideas man and you know that's probably been the most profitable idea that anyone in the film industry has had the, you know the, the, the Star Wars franchise in, on merchandising alone is worth billions you, you know the amount of nostalgia from our generation that's attached to those Star Wars figures that's something that you hit on in, in great depth in your book it brought back waves of nostalgia for me and then you you hit us with the absolute bombshell of the time you lost your Star Wars figures. Oh, that's it. Still runs deep. In fact, I was chatting with my mum just just at the weekend about it, and she she remembered some other things, and she was she said it was really cruel that that, that happened. I'm like, yeah, thanks, mum. I know. Yeah, I we were coming back from Crete. Uh, we we're going on a Greek holiday, and naturally, as a seven year old Star Wars fan, I took my my first set of twelve Star Wars figures to Crete with me, as you do, and they were in my sort of holiday satchel which we left in a cab we had we got our flight got diverted so our attentions were a bit tired and exhausted and yeah i lost all star wars figures and it was the days before you just handed over your money to the cab driver and you just wave goodbye we couldn't trace the cab at all i as i say in the book i've I've still got this vision of 12 quite new star wars figures they weren't old um sat on a a sort of lost property shelf at gatwick south terminal but yeah, it was pretty mortifying. The only, only upside was my parents were really wise to my upset and sense of loss. And I, I remember getting more pocket money that weekend. But then I couldn't find the replacements. And there's one or two figures that become a sort of running joke in the book um, where I haven't been able to replace them. So yeah, maybe I should uh, write to the Kenner archives and see if they've got some spare. For, we'll swap one for a copy of the book. Well, Mark, I promise you, if I ever find a mint on card Leia in her Bespin gown, I promise you, I will get oh. it and I will send it to you. <laughs> you weren't meant to say that. It's meant to be one of the butch, angry commandants. Yeah. Yeah, but they were the ones that were so easy to get because, you know, as you say, the snowtroopers, the biker scouts, they were the ones that were probably manufactured in, in greater numbers. But there yeah. was always those few figures that you could just never get. Yeah. I think there was, what, what, what's the, the guy with the really long arms in Jabba's palace? Is it a man-a-man? Oh. Uh, he, he, he looks like a really oh, sort of odd, yes, or almost like flat sausage-shaped lizard. Now, I always remember having that figure, and then there was sort of this schoolyard thing of I became very quickly the only child in school to have this figure, at which point I thought, well, you know, I'm not bringing him to school anymore because someone's going to steal him. Yeah, but yeah, I, there was... There was a sort of hierarchy to Star Wars figures that it was a sort of social currency. Yeah, and and when we sort of saw the the rebirth of, of Star Wars around about the mid nineties, um, in the in the build up to the new films coming out, when the and in ninety seven where the original films were, for better or worse, were restored. You know, I remember seeing that like there were these toy auctions where original mint on card Boba Fett figures were going for like fifty thousand dollars, and oh. 
you know, if, God forbid, if you ever had the um, the prototype that, that, that fired the red rocket, which um, which Kenner quickly pulled because they thought children were going to choke on it, you know, mm. you, you you were absolutely minted. Now I remember seeing at least four or five of those go for staggering amounts in auction. I I know I I, I I we never kept the card backs. I kept them for a little while, but I'm glad I played with them. I, I I understand the buying the stuff now and keeping it on a shelf unopened i've got one or two from the new films but um i love you know, the battered history of these figures is where they come alive yeah and you know i think again i don't know if you've seen the, the recent documentaries um which have appeared I, on netflix about the the, the the toys from the 70s and 80s absolutely that is such a as a sidebar moment here that is such a great beautifully curated series with real energy and and awareness about it they've just, they've added a few more but yeah the star wars one is great and there's another film called plastic fantastic yeah or no plastic galaxy yeah. plastic galaxy which is is a good one as well um it's, it's curious that like, like, like i say the, the generation of that grew up with those toys are now becoming filmmakers and documentary makers and that's feeding into this sort of genre of 80s-ness yeah, you know, when when have we ever seen in you know in, in times before the, this 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 watching skies era as you call it? When have we ever seen anything like that? I, you know, I, I go back and think of of my parents and and the things they would have grown up with, and at no point did they ever have anything approaching the same sort of reverie for things from their childhood as this generation has. Uh, well, the the two thousand and one bubble bath set is is amazing. I kid. There was toys. I mean, uh, Planet of the Apes. Uh, that franchise they had some toys and i think that slightly gave 20th century fox and lucas some idea of maybe we could have some toys here and also star trek kept going throughout the 70s with all its toys and spin-offs and merchandise but yeah it was it was star wars just ch- changed the game on that and, and a lot of people think oh it was a cynical money-making ploy by george lucas i there would have been a a revenue raising agenda because he wanted to slightly break away from the hollywood systems and finance his own movies so those movies partly have to be financed through things like merchandise but also i think he was very aware of the 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 story play and the what kids do and they'll you know they'll engage with a star wars if they engage with the star wars figure they'll engage with the film so it's sort of like a a catch-22 uh business plan uh and i thoroughly commend it Oh, absolutely! It, it was a genius piece of um, a marketing plan that just, just seems to have paid back dividends. And you know, they're still going. A, f- a friend of the film eighty nine crew, um, Ant- Anthony, he's you know he's he's older than me, mm. but his little sort of passion on the side is collecting Star Wars figures. He keeps them you know unopened and you know on their card, but then he goes around uh, you know getting or getting them all autographed, which. Whilst I think you know that's such a an expensive, time-consuming thing, you know that's his passion and that's something he's taken with him from childhood. I think because ultimately yeah. his his original, much like you, uh, Star Wars figures collection got thrown out by his mum and dad. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was an only child, so I I don't know. Maybe we had more space. I didn't throw away much as well. I, I mean, I've still got my Panini sticker albums. <gasps> Um, wow. In fact, I've got a big tub of eighties ness at the moment staring at me, and he's going the loft because I had it out for the book. Um, yeah. but it's full of like magazines and panini stick yeah you know, unfinished panini sticker albums and gremlins novelizations yeah it's and I will never get rid of it I, I don't care what it's worth it's 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 part of my personal museum it's what I'll grab if there's a fire that and the bond suitcase yeah, yeah. like you say there, there, there is this attachment to things which are very much throwaway I, I remember about I think it was about six years ago a friend of mine was turning 40 massive football fan. And and then when you mentioned the, the Panini football album, 
I, I'd kept virtually in pristine condition a completed uh, Football 86 uh, Panini oh. sticker album. Wow. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to give that to him as a, as a present for his 40th birthday. And the way his face lit up, you know, if there's a 40-year-old man looking yeah. at, you know, a, a, quite an old sticker album from his childhood that I was given to him complete, he was just overwhelmed. And yeah. it, it's this, like, sort of probably irrational attachment to things which have, you know, what actual physical value have they got? It's, it's, it's all purely nostalgia. Yeah, but it's no more... It's no different to people today sort of following a, a fan or a, or a football manager on Twitter or Instagram. It's the same sort of engagement. It's just through different media. Um, but I got I remember the World Cup 86. I can see those sticker packets strewn on the buses and, mm. you know, just on pavements, along with the Return of the Jedi and the Gremlins ones. Yeah, and they're still doing that. You know, obviously, the Panini thing's still, do, still going. But I remember they were 10p for a pack of five or six stickers. And now there's something like two quid for of five it's sort of that's uh that's progress for you and and, and can you remember mark that that smell of opening a fresh pack of panini stickers oh yes yeah absolutely yeah, why that why why do i remember that yeah it's the same as the yeah. smell of the star wars figures that yeah that slightly sweet resin that probably had a few chemicals in we shouldn't be inhaling <laughs> but but I, I i put this in the book that we you know when we've bought like a new a utensil for the kitchen like a or a plastic ice tray i'm like this smells of Star Wars. And yeah. my other half sort of looks at me like, what are you talking about? And I'm suddenly thinking, you didn't have Star Wars figures, did you? No, well, you don't get that this does smell like a, a newly opened speeder bike. As I've said to people who've, who've been asking me, like, oh, what's that book you're reading there? You know, if it's anyone in the same age bracket, I've just given them the book, they've read the back, and you've just got the same reaction. They're like, oh, wow. Yeah. And you can see immediately just from, you know, the few paragraphs on the back of the book is triggering these memories of nostalgia. And... Mm. You know, the, the moments in the book where I just had to stop and put it down because it's actually taken me so vividly back to my childhood. Oh, bless. And it's, That's interesting. Yeah. It, it, it's one of those things that psychologists will tell you it's almost impossible to recall an event from your life, particularly a traumatic one, without associating yourself with the emotions you felt at the time. Mm. And mm. you know, there, there's even little moments in the book where you talk about personal things you went through with the, the breakup of your parents, being an only child. I was mm. the only, only child growing up in the 80s. Towards the tail end of the 80s, um, my parents divorced and split up as well. And there were moments where it was just bringing back these these feelings. And, and obviously, with yourself, Mark, I think a lot of the way you sort of helped deal with these things you were going through is to sort of just lose yourself in these fantasy films, which, you know, is, is it right to say that they did help a lot in, in as a coping strategy when you were growing up? Distractions, probably. Yes, yeah, yeah, distractions. But... I mean, I, I'll leave readers to, to get there on how I first saw any moving clip of Star Wars. I was aware of it. I'd seen a friend's toy collection. But the first time I saw any part of The uh, New Hope, it was in a very different, strange context. And, uh, and whilst looking back going, God, should I have been there? That was a strange way of experiencing a film. But all I remember really, apart from some of the details of some of the people that were around me, I, all I remember is seeing... Darth Vader in that context I didn't they were distractions yes um and as, as an only child I in a crass way this doesn't sound right but they were sort of my siblings these movies especially the Star Wars films that you would watch over and over so they became company uh, and then you, you slightly get interested in 
the name Steven Spielberg or George Lucas and then you, you find a few of the other films and then that's how it opens out. I remember seeing um, the, the conversation with Gene Hackman when I was about nine or ten, which is a ridiculous age to watch that film because of Superman and because I knew his name um, and that was that comes a bit later but yeah, I found these films just great company as I highlight in the book I would close the curtains I would you know make sure no one came in the lounge turn it up loud with our mono stereo or not even stereo our, our mono tv yeah and I'd, I'd, I'd love to go back actually and just see what those films looked like and sounded like a big thing you cover in the book is the the, the technological i don't want to call them limitations because at the time you know you, you you had this box underneath your tv which it, as you say it, it revolutionized things growing up we had three then four then five channels which compared to our, like our American cousins, they must have thought we were living in the dark ages. But then to put this this device in the home where we could just go down to the local shop, the the, the garage or wherever they were, you know, selling mm. v- VHS and earlier obviously Betamax tapes, and we could bring a film home for a night or two nights or three nights and 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 watch it to our heart's content. And and the sort of way that even that, you know, as I'm thinking about it now, it is sort of this feeling of how revolutionary that was and I remember having our own first VHS recorder and it just opened up this this new world to us what, what would you say Mark is is the single thing that we've had the single most important technological innovation that's come after that period which has revolutionized the way we consume entertainment you mean post 80s post, yeah, yeah, post I mean, that time yeah, post- uh, mm, I don't want to use the n word I mean I mean the Netflix mm. word not the other one I think it evolves you know, things evolve. Um, poss- uh, probably YouTube, because mm. YouTube ha- has changed how we, you know, uh, how we see anything. So we, uh, uh, YouTube, you can see a trailer on YouTube, old or new. YouTube, you can see someone talking about a film. So YouTube sort of, I don't know what the phrase is, sort of emancipated movie discussion and film discussion i don't think 3d's a thing i don't that uh hd's been good i mean hd oddly hd is one of the sort of you can trace the the history and the need for hd back to george lucas who was always very keen to upgrade and to clean up his films and i i'm actually quite a defender of lucas and i'm a controversial alert i'm a defender of the prequels i can see where they slip up and trip up but uh george lucas yeah, he gets this reputation for forever tampering and tinkering with his films. He was actually doing it about a week after the first release of A New Hope. He was changing the sound levels. He was adding more blasters. He was adding a, an opening crawl. He was adding episode four that wasn't there for a while. He was doing all these different um, little... He, yeah, he's, chip, he's always chipping away at his sculpture. And I actually think in doing that, when he cleans up and whatever the phrase digitizes and cleans up a new hope for for 1997's audiences when the special editions came out he was making them fresh again he was allowing new audiences to come in so that for me i i I really like the hd crispness of movies whether at the cinema i'm glad we have digital projection because too many british uh cinema chains just do not know how to project and exhibit their films properly, sadly, uh, at times we live in. So I, I like that that HD thing is there. That's one of my ones. But to answer you, so maybe it's just the multiplex. It, having multiplexes changed how many movies were made. And then that had an effect on everything. Because one thing to bear in mind is when Return of the Jedi, E.T. or Empire Strikes Back came out. Yes, other films were around at the time, but there wasn't the mass of films. You know, you know you'd, you'd have... One well, you wouldn't have a Marvel film, but if you did, it'd be one every three or four years, not one every three or four months, which is sort of what we've got 
with that studio. Yeah, well, that's, that's quite timely that you say that because, you know, back then we were having you know one Star Wars film every three years. And earlier uh, today, we've, we've put um, an article on the site about the fact now that apparently Lucasfilm are, are going to put a halt to any future plans for any Star Wars spin-off films. Yes, and yeah, I, think I, I got wind of that. A lot of people are saying it. It's because we've had, you know, we had Last Jedi in December, and then in May we've got Solo. Do Do you think now that we're basically getting too much at once, so we're not getting drip fed these things, and we're not getting teased like you know, like we were back when we were children? Yes, I think there is. There's sort of an embarrassment of riches uh, in terms of our movies now. I didn't have a problem with Solo coming out so quickly after Last Jedi until it came out and hit various walls of dissent and consternation and dismay um a star wars film should feel like we haven't had christmas for two years or three years it shouldn't feel like another bank holiday you know that time in may where we get loads of bank holidays and it's great but you know oh another bank holiday and that's what solo felt to me in terms of the event that's something watching skies is very keen to sort of document and remember these films were an event et was one of the biggest moments of popular culture of the 20th century i don't think that's that's sort of hyperbole to go there and likewise of course star wars and jaws solo was never going to be jaws it was never going to be a new hope but possibly had they just waited another six months or, or a year i think it will be good that we've got you know a good 18 month gap now until episode nine hope you know touch wood that yeah. will, that's that's a good thing it's, it's strange everyone i'm a big bond fan and everyone says oh why can't we have a bond film every year like they did in the 60s well that's not how films are made anymore Mm. but the irony is that star wars films which we had to wait three years for back in the day are now coming out once a year i think if solo had been a stronger movie and and i I don't think it's faults are down to alden or other directors or the change of directors i just i think there's a big script problem with it but had it been a stronger film the fans a lot of fans wouldn't have revolted and been so sort of vociferous online and also maybe the studios wouldn't have put a little pause like it's been announced uh, this week that they've they've paused the uh, star wars films there's probably more going on i.e they've got other projects so you know ryan johnson's got an alleged trilogy uh the guys that do game of thrones are allegedly they've got a trilogy as well so i don't think we're going to be short on future star wars films yeah i, I think you're right though mark the fact there was definitely this feeling back when we were growing up that these were event films yeah, you know, because of the technological limitations of the time and the lack of an internet, uh, we knew a third Star Wars film was coming, mm. but we, you know, that's all we knew. And you know, the the first thing we would see then would be a teaser poster, and then yeah. if we were lucky, we'd go to see a film in the, the you know the upcoming months before the release of the film, and we'd see a trailer. Yeah, I mean that's something we didn't go to the cinema as much as I, I don't think as kids. We it was a treat. It wasn't all the time. That's what I. It was like always school holidays. So you're right. You'd run that gamble of hope going off to see The Secret of Nim or uh, Never Ending Story and just hope you might get a trailer for Ghostbusters or Return of the Jedi. Well, yeah, it was, you know, it, it seems to me now thinking back that, you know, a trip to the cinema was like a birthday treat or, mm. you know, it did, I have, I've got very few recollections of films that I saw in the cinema when I was a kid compared to the amount of uh, films I saw for the first time on VHS. Yes. You know, I don't know. Is it is it because now we're, we're adults? We're you know we can go wherever we want. We've got our own disposable income. I, I don't know if it's that or I think there, there was just so much emphasis put on. Well, you know, it's the convenience of going to a video store, getting a cassette, taking it home, and then you know you can watch it, you know, to your heart's mm. content. Whereas, 
You go to the cinema, you watch it once. Whilst it lacked that magic of seeing a film on the big screen, uh, in widescreen with, you know, with great sound, there was still a certain magic to watching it on your crappy little CRT TV. Just, I think there was a, a feeling of ownership, like you, more than you ever had before, you actually owned that film, albeit, you know, for a, for a small time. The film's watching Sky's uh, focuses on it's where theatrical became retail well became rental and then became retail there was a slight gap in that it was a big thing there would always be a kid in the neighborhood who said he had a copy of the Empire Strikes Back or there'd be a pirated uh, Superman 2 doing the rounds I never saw them we got our video quite late though our video player didn't get it till uh, Christmas 84 but the whole idea and this is something that without sounding like the old man in the, the rocking chair on the front porch we the idea of just pausing a film because yeah. if, if you, you didn't have a video player, you couldn't pause television. So the idea of just, oh, I'm just going for a, a toilet break or answer the phone. You couldn't pause something. You couldn't stop it. And you certainly couldn't see it again. And then we got our video players. And I, I think it constantly going back to why is this 80s nostalgia? Well, part of it was that those titles, those products could be consumed by people when they chose. So suddenly the future J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnsons could could watch those films like we did at home with our parents allowing us. We could watch them at any time. Yeah, and, you know, I look at my own children now and they're, you know, they're seven and four years old and they've just got so much entertainment at their fingertips. They've got, uh, they've got oh, sorry, Amazon HD tabs, whatever they are, and mm. they've got uh, an Amazon Fire Stick. They've got a PlayStation, which they can access things on. They've got, you know, Sky TV. It, they, but they, they haven't got a cardboard Death Star. No, they have haven't. They? Yeah, That's right. See, see, <laughs> it's, you're, it's actually just compensation for not having plastic and cardboard forty-year-old yeah. toys. That's right. Uh, it's just—it's a distraction. That's what it is. No, they, they, they haven't got the excitement of, of that once a week where your mum would do the weekly shopping. She'd go to Tesco's, and you know that she'd be coming home with a three and three-quarter-inch Star Wars figure. Now hold on, hold, you, she would pick for you. That's that's got me. I've that's got me nervous already. Yes, it, it, tell it, tell me you you went along for the ride because I was the same. It was always Friday morning. My mum would always do the weekly shop, and our supermarket was right next to the toy store as well. So I would always just sort of do a beeline, and it would always be like you know the imperial guards that we all owned or Chief Chirper. It's like how many times do we need Chief Chirper? I'm oh. looking for Wicket. I need a Wicket. I can send you a mark. Um, I, I, think I've got, I have got one. I have got one. He's, he's sat on my shelf right now. Reading the book would bring back memories like when she would come home with a figure that I, I didn't particularly want. But I was also thinking, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm building up a collection. Uh, I don't even, some of the characters at the time, I didn't even know who they were. Like uh, the Emperor's yeah. the Emperor's Dignitary. Uh, I think mm. that was one of the figures I looked at. And I thought, really, mum? You, you couldn't have got me just another snowtrooper? You know, I'm trying to create, yeah. a, trying to create a troop here, trying to recreate the Battle of Hoth. And you bring me this old guy in a purple cloak? Yeah, yeah, I know the ones you mean. Yeah, and they're still intriguing. We're still not quite sure who no. who they are, uh, no. which I quite like. <laughs> I've some, I read a great theory that they're part of the Snoke family. I'm, I'm sure it's a silly fan theory, but um, yeah, they were sort of random figures, and it was always the ones you really wanted. I don't know if that that was deliberate, if they just sort of teased the market because uh, a kid would go along, and they'd ha- you'd have to come away with a Star Wars figure if that was your mission that day. So regardless of which one you bought, you know, like we'd all come back and we'd have a droid that we weren't too keen on but it it was still a star wars forget it. that merchanting merchandising idea of having the card with all the ones you have yet to collect that that's quite genius that is that's a great business plan because then that sense of ownership and people won't believe this but getting a complete star wars set which none of us really did getting that or getting the figures that was like getting your first mobile phone or being allowed to open a facebook account that that was that, i'm trying to sort of equate the uh 
the moments of wonder then and now. But I, I, yeah, that's how I would sort of look at it. I'm going to intersperse this with little questions here, now, which some yeah, of them might throw you a bit. Right. Thinking back now, what is the one piece of Star Wars merchandise or, or toys or whatever that you didn't have that you most wish that you had? Snowspeeder. And Landspeeder, but Snowspeeder. Definitely Snowspeeder. Right, yeah. No, yeah. And I had two X-Wings as well. People, That was the annoying thing, because having divorced parents, there's there's one good side, is you you sort of you get the same presents, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so my, I was someone bought me an x-wing and my dad bought me an x-wing so suddenly i had two x-wings but i really really wanted the snow speeder that was that was the one i think it's a beautiful piece of design that's that sort of um curved wings it's a great well all the star wars ships from the yeah. original trilogy are really beautifully thought out well yeah my mine i think would have had to have been the atat i never had the atat oh uh, yeah. i've still got my atat in the loft oh. it still works yeah i, yeah, and I, I didn't I, didn't lose the battery uh, cover pad either that's always the bit people lost yeah. I've, I think they're probably up my mum's attic somewhere, but I'm pretty sure as well I've got an at ST. But yeah, never had the at at. No, it's and they weren't cheap as well. They were no. very much Christmas and birthdays only. Um, I remember the Millennium Falcon in a Christmas '84 was something like twenty-seven, twenty-eight pounds, which yeah. is a lot of money. But although, look, I've still got it. It, it hasn't fallen apart. It hasn't broken up or eroded. So they were well made as yeah, well. Oh yeah, yeah. On the flip side of my the question about you know what you think has changed the way we sort of digest films now on the flip side, given now the fact that we're all so interconnected with social media and the internet, what do you miss most about the the more simple technological times from the era covered in the book? I miss not being spoon fed every detail or sort of theory about a film, and I try and avoid it. I try and avoid it with Bond as well, but I. And yes, I watch it. You watch it. We all watch them. So if there's like a episode nine, two minute behind the scenes sort of promo montage, we will watch it. But sometimes I, I'd like just to not to not have that. I'm wondering, I'm sort of slightly telling myself if if and when we get Indiana Jones five, I might try and avoid everything. I might be that guy. I won't watch the trailer. I probably can't avoid the poster. But I just want to try and do it. So that's slightly what I miss the the era of being a virgin as it were a sort of movie virgin and not knowing everything that we're, we're fed too much and the first onset picture of dr strange almost has more currency than what the movie makes itself that is exactly the answer i would have given as well and sometimes it can work to initially to a film's detriment if you you think back to early well i think late 2007 when they first announced that um, heath ledger was going to play the joker there was uproar and mm. it was the same in 2005 when they announced that Daniel Craig was going to take over as Bond. There was a load of backlash about that. Mm. It was all for nothing. Heath Ledger was incredible as the Joker. Daniel Craig has proven himself as Bond, in, I think, in, in the eyes of many Bond fans. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas back in the day, it was just like, here it is, here's the film, you go in, you watch it, then you make the judgment of it. And I fully agree, we, we are certainly spoon-fed too much. I would love now to be able to go into a film completely blind and just watch it like we did back when we were kids. Mm. But unfortunately, especially in my capacity as, you know, we've got a film website, we've, we've got to post news articles in the run oh, up to the release of a film. So yeah, unfortunately absolutely. now, I, I'm, I'm sort of denied that ability to go in blind. And yes. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 I think it's a, the, the information network, the uh, sorry, the information age that we're living in now, it is a double-edged sword when it comes to our enjoyment of films. Yeah, also, I and this is a terrible thing to say because no one will agree with me, but everyone will know what I mean. Films come out so quickly to, to, to buy these days. I mean, back in the day, it would be a year 
before Return of the Jedi would come out on VHS to rent, the sort of retail end was further down the timeline. But the idea of Last Jedi, I think Force Awakens came out sort of just two months later to buy on Blu-ray and DVD. And possibly, in hindsight, that's affected Solo because The Last Jedi came out a month or two before Solo on home release. So it's like that that clipped at Solo's heels as well. But I, the idea of just not having the film so available, if that makes sense. Um, but then I'm beginning to sound like the guy that wants cracks on CD, you know, wants to hear the crackle on a CD. Uh, CD, look at me. No one says CD either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was, I'll, I'll be honest, right? I'm, I, I've fully embraced HD technology. I'm, I'm a stickler for seeing a film in the best possible version. I, I sort of fall somewhere in between. I still like having the the feel of a piece of physical media in your hands, like when you have like a deluxe Blu-ray set, which has got like a book and a, and a, you know, a nice cardboard sleeve, or, or when they really go to town on a lavish set and, and you, you feel like you're owning something that you can put on the shelf and it's, it's a physical reminder of those films yes. that you've got. So, you know, I'm not totally all for having everything downloaded, having everything just sitting on a hard drive, ready to play whenever I want. Mm. Mm. But there was that thing that when you were younger of being the first person to go into the, the video rental store and to get your reservation on a film that you knew was coming out the following week. I, I, oh, there was there was a long waiting list. I, I yeah. didn't see Empire for such a long time. And we, we booked, as I say in the book, we booked it for Christmas Eve 1984 because I knew that the garage was because it was a garage we'd get our rentals from and I knew that they'd be closed for two or three nights because of the Christmas holiday and I was like right we'll we'll pay it for, I think it's like, it was probably like one pound as well and we had it for three four days and it was amazing it was yeah. brilliant one of the most gut-wrenching things in your book Mark is just the way that you were on on so many occasions denied seeing Empire in proper order of the Star Wars trilogy I know yeah, it's still, it was the one I, out of the original trilogy, it was the one I saw last, which a few Star Wars fans might roll their eyes and try and start a fight at the cantina bar with me. But my mum uh, was a teacher at the time, and they had these sort of truncated half-hour versions of films that would be on 16 mil, and schools, local schools and local councils would somehow get copies of these films, and they'd show them at Christmas or church school parties. I remember not being too well, actually, on the night of empire strikes back so i was going back and forth to the loo which is in the rain and i describe how i do literally i can see hoff layer with the rain coming down the window outside pouring with rain cold rain at christmas and seeing layer and then the attacks but it was so truncated it didn't make sense and i even knew that this isn't this is a short version star wars shouldn't be like 22 minutes so yeah and then i would i had a little hissy fit the day that our local Odeon had the trilogy of films on re-release, I think sort of circa 84, maybe 85. I had an, a bad child behaviour moment and was denied access again. So yeah, Empire was the elusive sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark idol that I finally, finally grabbed. It was Christmas Day morning, 84 was when I finally saw it. I have to ask, Mark, that day where you had this tantrum, could, what had you done? You must have done something awful. Uh, someone else asked me that yesterday. I imagine I probably slammed a door. I was quite a door slammer. Mm. There was quite a lot of drama and slamming doors. I vaguely feel a swear word may have been involved. Oof. And that my parents, in a, in a loving, kind way, probably couldn't be bothered to sit through three out or three Star Wars movies because one of them, at least, would have to accompany me. So I think maybe a swear word, or it probably been a culmination of a very bad week. Um, the decision was made, and um, well, they've had to live with it. I've got used to it, but they had to live with what they did to my childhood that cruel day. 
Well, if there's any consolation, Mark, I've got a similar thing that when I finally got uh, a rental copy of Ghostbusters, which I'd waited ages to see uh, because I didn't see in the cinema, one morning I'm having my breakfast. For whatever reason, I have a bit of a tantrum and I stuck in my mum's kitchen table a butter knife in temper. Oh, yeah. What, so so a- alien style. Sort yeah. Of proper. Yeah. And she took the, the, the rental copy that I was about to watch back to the video store, gave it oh. back and said, he's not watching this until he learns to behave. That's why Childline was set up. Yeah, the exactly. first two years of Childline were just kids complaining that the VHS had been taken from them the last See, minute. Yeah. You know, we're having like a cathartic, nostalgic discussion now, and this is obviously bringing back things from my childhood that I probably buried because of how much trauma they caused me at the time. Yeah, I, I, th- I might have avoided going to church as well. That was that was a sin. My mother yeah. wasn't some horrible die-hard Catholic mother by any stretch. Yeah, not going on a Sunday morning to church. I may have kicked off, and yeah, I I, I know it was a it was a Sunday that was cancelled. This this triple bill did not happen on the Sunday. Well, like, you know, I, I don't know what's worse, Mark. Obviously, you were denied seeing the films in the cinema. I actually saw or was taken to see Empire Strikes Back um, in 1981 with my parents. I have no recollection of it whatsoever. Ah. I vaguely remember my first two films at the cinema. One was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and I think the other one was um, Herbie Rides Again, both Disney films. Yeah, how old were you in 81? How? That's... Well, I would. I was born se- uh, November 76, so I would have been uh, five. It was basically a case of mum and dad really wanted to go and see, or, or go and see a film. They didn't. They didn't have a babysitter. They thought, oh, well, it's uh, it's not like it's a 15-rated film. We'll take him along, and apparently, I slept for most of it. Oh, uh, oh my God! Yeah. Gosh, it's, it's, this is like group therapy. Now. I know. I know. Like, we have progressed to week five already here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I I did see Return of the Jedi at the cinema, and I I remember every detail of that, and this, seeing the marquee lettering on the yellow f- illuminated frontage at our sort of old Art Deco monoplex, as I called it. As I say in the book, I I can remember bus- drinking way too much Dr Pepper, which was always my problem, and needing a pee, racing to this freezing cold 1930s gents urinal I, remember, I can feel the tiles like the, the freezing cold tiles and hearing Alec Guinness's voice uh, talking to Luke because it was the day when everyone would smoke in the cinemas and well one half of the aisle you could smoke in there was this ridiculous assumption the non-smokers would be fine if they just sat on the other side and I remember seeing the whole projection streams coming out the back of the, the uh, movie theatre and it was like a sort of R2 hologram projected and I, I, I was sort of fascinated by that actually that blue the blue cigarette smoke mixed with the return of the jedi and alec guinness it was and then he was blue as well on stage i always remember that moment of coming back so i'm glad that I, the original trilogy did give me one remembrance of being at the at the movies next random question which i put in yeah. which actually it fits in with what, what we're talking about there what film from your lifetime that you didn't see in the cinema do you most wish you could see say if you know, time travel were possible now. Oh gosh, that's a really good one. Oh gosh, now this my knee jerk is one of the bonds. Um, oh, I, actually no, uh, Superman the movie. Uh, easily. Oh yeah. Yes, yeah. Superman the movie. I saw Superman two at our local cinema in like a late re-release. I think the cinema owners had got a cheap copy on rental for a week, and they played it. And I remember seeing that there. But yeah, definitely Superman the movie. Uh, I'd love to have seen that on the big screen back in the day. And Jaws, had I not been like two days old that um yeah, yeah. See, i'd like to see jaws on the big screen one day i'm sure i will jaws, jaws would be my knee-jerk reaction because it it, it vies for the position of my favorite film mm. i don't think i'll ever get it because i don't from a personal point of view 
Robocop will always be my favourite film. Uh-huh, uh, if, yeah. you were to put it, if you put a gun to my head, what's the greatest film I've ever made? I would nine times out of ten say Jaws. Mm-hmm. I think the one, it would have to be Empire Strikes Back. To go in fresh, to go in not knowing um, the big revelation towards the end, That I think that for me would be the one cinematic experience that although apparently I saw it when I was a kid, I was way too young to remember. You know, Obviously at that point I hadn't even seen the first film. Yeah, yeah. or cl- Close Encounters as well. I'd love to see that on the big screen. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know it played last week at the Albert Hall. I was I slightly missed the boat and sorting tickets out. Yeah, those sort of that era of massive movies on the big screen. And, um, I'm trying to think of any some more. No, we just we always saw the Disney's because they were on a sort of eternal re-release loop and in, you know interspersed with perhaps a Star Wars movie every three years. You mentioned Close Encounters, there, Mark. What is your preferred of the three versions? Which version do you think is the best? Oh gosh, I. I like the poetry of the director's cut where we see him aboard the ship, but then I don't like some of the things we lost in between to get to that moment. I did see, now hang, hang on, there's, there's, all diff, there's, the, there's the original cut, the special edition, and then the director's cut. I, yeah. I quite like the, actually, maybe the director's cut, but that's because it's the one I've seen most recently. There's a great press conference scene where we see a different side of Terry Gar, um, Ronnie Neary. She, she almost, does, she doesn't like Melinda Dillon's character, and she's she almost throws her under the bus a bit with a few looks. And there's, there was, a, I thought, ah, that's why maybe Dreyfus. It was a little easier for him to leave you and the kids because that always was a, for a Spielberg movie for the hero to be the the dad that's caused the breakup of the home is is a rare thing. Normally, everyone else is picking up the pieces, like in E.T. and lots of other instances in his work. I'd say maybe the director's cut, just because it's the one I saw the most recently. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. That's that's my preferred version as well. Mark, uh, coming as you do, like I do, from uh, a family where the, the parents ended up divorcing, how do you feel about Roy Neary and the way he just sort of leaves his family and goes off in this spaceship without you know any, any sort of consideration for them? Well, I don't know. A UFO... Or a child that keeps banging the door back and forth. You know, I'm, I'm like, you can you can be like the Neil Armstrong or the Yuri Gagarin. You can be the sort of the next chapter of human evolution, or you can deal with those kids in the back of the station wagon and uh, Ronnie Neary going on about coupons and phoning the boss. Yeah. Uh, that's right. That's the flippant answer. Um, it's a brave thing Spielberg does there because he's he's famously from a broken home himself and it feeds into so much of his films whether it's intentional or not and there's there's always the absent father figure in in all of his works or we see the father figure being absent which is what um close encounters does but then so does um duel to a degree as well and the sugarland express that we we did a spielberg episode recently uh-huh. and we were talking about our favorite spielberg films and one of the team there i think it was jim cottle he actually came up with the fact that is Roy Neary acting of his own volition, or um, when he first has this encounter with the UFO, does it put? Because obviously, a lot of the people in the film are driven by this uncontrollable urge to go to, um, you know, the mountain. Mm. Is it more sinister the fact that these aliens are just removing the the the, the thing of choice from him, and they're actually controlling him through whatever they've done to his brain? Yeah, I always feel, when I saw Close Encounters recently. It dawned on me that it's those people that were invited and the ones that are in the helicopter with the gas masks and it's only Roy and Melinda Dillon and the other guy that that they break free, but they don't all make it round Devil's Tower to the launch site or the landing site rather. Um, And I always wonder if the aliens were picking, were cherry picking accidentally, just people, you know, obviously they're all going to be from America. There's no sort of 
uh, Europeans in there. Well, I suppose Truffaut ticks that box. But I always wonder that unless if Dreyfus or Roy Neary wasn't actually there, if he hadn't made the effort to climb up the mountain and work his way round and find the landing site, the aliens wouldn't have come. It's almost like he's the they need one of those people that were invited. I mean, it's a line of the film that, you know, these people were invited. Um, so perhaps he's vital to the whole project. You, you sort of feel that he's sneaking in at the end there, but he's not. I think they, they possibly only land and, and take things further because Roy is there. That's, that's a very loose theory I've got. Uh, I get the whole thing about the aliens. Uh, it's a slightly... I mean, I find E.T. quite... There's parts of E.T. and Close Encounters that are really horrific. They're, they're like suburban horror movies with these UFOs pushing through the chimneys and rattling uh, washing machines and starting up hoovers and toys. So, yeah, there's a sort of malevolence there. But I I think Spielberg... The whole f- You can forgive Roy Neary for what he does because Spielberg fills it with this sort of sense of... I don't want to say the word wonder, but that is a word. Spielberg taps into how there's a kindness and there's a benevolence and there's a future thinking liberalism to that whole scientific project that takes place in Close Encounters. And it's and it's all about artists. It's, you know, the, the people that the aliens pick pick upon, because, you know, are artists. One might sculpt, one might draw. Uh, you've got all the, the, the guy at the keyboard playing the notes. There's, it's all about celebrating art and artistry. And that's that's something I pick up in the book as, as well, that all the characters in Close Encounters are good. You could actually say Roy, Roy is the exception to that. I would do the same, I think. I don't have kids. I don't work the lines in the sort of Indiana, but I, I think we'd all maybe do the same. Because also the suggestion is he can come back. Albeit, it would, I would imagine, be years in the future and his children would, would grow up. But yeah, I see what you're saying. He don't exactly you know, paint his family in the best pictures. And you know, it is a bit, you know, the, the Neary household is certainly chaotic. Mm. Mark, next completely random question. Obviously, Close Encounters, E.T. and the like um, show this extremely uh, benevolent idea of aliens and extraterrestrials. Mm. But also, in the early 80s, uh, horror was gearing up again and was becoming extremely popular. Why do you think John Carpenter's 1982 film The Thing was such a failure on its initial release? Oh, I I don't know when it came out. Did it was it actually pitched in the summer? Did it did it hit? It was, did it hit the ET she, wave? That probably was. It was I think answer. two weeks t- between two and four weeks after the release of ET. It was June 1982. It was the same day that Blade Runner was released. Another film that was a failure theatrically. Mm. But you know, we, we did a, an, an episode um, a while back all about the thing, and obviously that film was it was it was a massive failure. It was a big flop, and it it almost changed the course of how John Carpenter directed films. You watch it now; it's an absolute masterpiece. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I just wonder what your thoughts were on why that film failed initially. Bearing in mind it ticked, it ticked the boxes of horror, science fiction, and was done so well. Carpenter was, you know, very well thought of at the time. He'd had a string of hits under his belt from Assault on Precinct 13 onwards. What, why did that film at that particular point in 1982 become such a failure? Well, I'm going to make up a really bold theory here just to give one answer. And what Star Wars and E.T. did was they they made cinema young and full of wonder and childhood as well. Um, and possibly older you know, older audiences in their 20s and 30s weren't fully engaged with cinema. I can't say that for sure because I wasn't, you know, I was only five or six myself. So possibly younger audiences were dominating the box office with E.T. and 
you know, Secret of Nim and Star Trek 2 and 3 and 4. It's a good one. Sometimes it's just some films, you know, we've seen it with Solo, sometimes some films just slightly don't gel on the nights. That doesn't mean they're bad films. I mean, look at Shawshank Redemption, you know, one of the best films ever made, barely got noticed until sort of a few Brits and Empire magazine picked up on it when it was on uh, VHS. Um, sometimes the, the wind is, is not under the wings of a movie. Uh, and that possibly you could you could describe that. Would, would you agree, Mark, that when, when you've got a film like that, which fails initially, but then over the course of the years, there's there's a really gradual snowball effect, like with The Thing, mm-hmm. uh, with, Bla- with Blade Runner. Do you think that it comes to the point then where, where fans finally do embrace it? Because... Um, you know, to kind of phrase from seven, long and hard is the road that leads into the light. They've come to this point where they now love and cherish this film, which was initially, you know, I myself did not like Blade Runner the first time I saw it, and it's a film I grew to love over the years. Do you think then that sort of solidifies the sense of ownership and and passion for a film in fans when it's initially been sort of thrown to the dogs? Yes, yeah, because imagine growing up in with E.T. and Jaws and Close Encounters. They're such big icons that... Hmm. Uh, to have a, a film you like that perhaps hasn't done well or not everyone's seen, that's 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 cool as well. I mean, there's a lot of films, you know, we use the phrase cult movie way too erroneously on too many films, which aren't cult movies at all. It's just they were slow burners. You know, Days Confused, uh, lots of Richard, Richard Linklater's early stuff was slow burners. And people like... I, I like it now. I, I find a film that I know no one's really seen, but I think it's amazing. Yeah, so that's possibly what helps, you know, those those cult films, that, that, that they are not the big release, that they are not dominating news headlines and, and royal premieres shows and all of that, that they are just, you know, slightly on the fringes. Yeah, and I think now, Mark, one of the things that you've mentioned is the fact that you've got a lot of cult films would have been not successes at the time, didn't have then a sort of resurgence in interest, like films like Blade Runner, that were like sort of lost to the mist of time. Films like uh, William Friedkin's Sorcerer from 77, which famously is the film that people say Star Wars buried. Mm. I think one, one good thing that in the time we live in now is films like this, these lost classics, because you've got labels like Masters of Cinema, you've got Arrow Entertainment, you've got Indicator, mm. that all, you know, they, they're finding these films, they're remastering them, they, they you know, they're you know, get putting extras together to, to sort of paint a history of this film, which we never would have gotten. I certainly think that that is one of the one of the best things about the time we live in now. The fact that you can just rediscover these films, mm. buy a Blu-ray, and just learn everything. It, it's like a it's like a portable film school. Yes, in, in a way. Yeah, that's actually a good answer to a previous question that you gave me. Where, yeah, I when a doc, when a, a new movie has a decent amount of documentaries that, that and care has been put into them. I think the Last Jedi. You've probably seen it, but that that feature-length documentary uh, called The Director and the Jedi is. A st- stunningly interesting frank look at behind the scenes on a big franchise movie in a way that we don't get anymore we don't get that honesty often we get the fluff pieces and the uh, you know it, this is how we did that stunt and it's not really how you did that stunt but it has filled it has filled two minutes but so yes i do i do like that we're in this great era of film enlightenment i suppose that, that we can find out stuff and i just wish some of the documentaries would be, would be braver like this last jedi one and, and go in more depth and be honest because um, i think that actually serves cinema more than sort of fluff pieces about you know, why we did this and why she's wearing that my last question now before I, we, we we have had a load of listener questions oh, a few nights a few nights ago i put out a tweet and asked for people to either dm us or, or email us with questions for you mm. the last of my questions is aside from the period of the book 
um, you know, the, the 1975 to 84, the watching skies period, as you call it. What period of film, or if it's a particular decade of film, outside of this period, are you most fond of and why? Ooh, uh, 60s Bond. Oof, yeah. And 70s Bond and 80s Bond and 90s <laughs> Bond. Um, 60s Bond, but also 90s Britpop cinema as well. I've, hmm. I've always Tra- liked... Train Spotting? Yeah, Train Spotting, Shallow Grave, Four Weddings, Human Traffic. I thought it was a that was perhaps the dare I say it was the last era so far where British cinema was was ahead of the, the curve, and, and there was a great movement of independent cinema as well, but on all sides of the Atlantic. So yes, yeah, sort of 90s Britpop cinema, and I'm you know, I'm really pleased as a Bond fan that Danny Boyle's doing Bond. It's a, it's yeah, a bit of a tangent there, but I think that, that's a great piece of casting. Okay, then last one. This is random. I'm making up on the spot, and you know I'd love to talk more in depth about Bond, Mark. If you ever want to come back on and just. That, have a Bond episode that would be fantastic. Absolutely. I'll get Jim, Jim Cottle. I'll get him on as well. He's a huge Bond fan. I'm sure he'd love to discuss the Bond franchise with you. Are you pro or against Spectre? I, I've got. I I can see what some people's observations with Spectre are. I think in hindsight, it slightly falls into the same trap that uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull falls into. It spends so long hiding what it's about. Yeah, it spends a lot of time hiding that it's a Blofeld movie and trying to slightly give a justification narrative-wise. So that's where it slightly trips up. Um, I, but I, I think Spectre's a really slick film. That, that first 10 minutes alone is a stunning sort of piece of cinema and production and sort of creative logistics. I love the title tune. I would have brought Monica Bellucci back. She's sort of slightly dropped very quickly. Um, but I, I love the look of it, the whole... Film feels almost like a Bertolucci movie, particularly the Rome scenes. There's a sort of 70s starkness to it. Possibly what happened was the studios wanted Skyfall 2. So that, and what was Skyfall was about a personal angle to Bond, and 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 that's not really why Skyfall was a great success. That it was a great success for a lot of reasons, most of them of its own doing and, and its own qualities, but also the timings of the Queen's Jubilee and the Olympics and that and the Danny Boyle sort of almost pre-title sequence bringing the queen into the olympic stadium and you know skyfall skyfall did what a lot of bond films haven't done at the time and it became i don't know if it became an event but it became a point of culture uh and bond doesn't always do that he used to do that a lot more in the 60s and 70s but skyfall you know everyone went to see skyfall it was a massive box office hit i, I remember hearing scaffolders humming the adele theme tune and thinking ah this film's this film's sort of gone beyond fandom and movie fans it's become a sort of cultural event of its uh, doing and i think what specter slightly suffers from is it's not that it, it, it and it could never do that you know and but i, I think it's, a, it's still a very good film um it's got a few glitches um i don't think any bond film should end with the villain probably in pentonville that's slightly a strange thing but we don't know where it's going we don't know what's happening next so you know, maybe it'll all fall into a good place next time around. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers yeah. crossed. Because I'm a massive Bond fan myself, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm certainly not pro Spectre. And like you say, how do you follow up a film like Skyfall? That you know, when the film shifted gears halfway or part of the way through, and he ends up going back to you know the home of his ancestry. Mm. It for me, I think the way I described it, I wrote a piece for a website I used to write for where I describe it as the film almost takes on a a mythological sort of feeling. Mm. It, 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 the, the, the tone, the, the, the pace of the film, everything just changed and it was sort of right, catch your breath, now we're going to show you something from Bond's past that you've never seen before. Mm. And yeah, I, you know, I think there's an argument for Skyfall being certainly 
one of the best Bond films. Yeah, yeah, and Spectre got hit by those horrible Sony leaks as well, and that hacking that wasn't that wasn't fair. And I remember people saying, "Oh, look, I've some someone tried to share me some of the stuff," and I'm like, this, this, "That's not my property. That's stolen property. I don't, I don't want to read a script because any movie script that's doing the internet rounds is not going to be the film that's made it anyway. Because films, that's not how it works. So yeah, that happened, and I think they, there was a few sort of last-minute changes of of um, story and character placement, but that is normal, and it's a bit like Solo. Like we we think we're all film executives, and we understand if we hear a director or a script's been replaced, it's a bad thing. It's like no, no, that happens all the time. It's just the headline has got some momentum of badness that it shouldn't have. We're going to go on now to some of the. We've had quite a lot of listener questions come through. The first one, Lisa Bowles via email asks, Mark. My brother and I have binge read your fantastic book as we're both huge 80s movie geeks. You've visited so many iconic movie places, but what movie place that you've not visited would you most like to go to and why? Devil's Tower, Wyoming. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's nothing else Nothing else to say, really, is there? Or Alberta, Calgary, or Alberta, Canada, rather, uh, for the Superman farm and, those, and all of that. But definitely Devil's Tower, Wyoming. Right. Lisa, I, I, I did a... I, I, a few people asked multiple questions. I was going to keep it to one per person, but I have to ask you Lisa's next question. Go for it. In the book, you have a few brushes with some very famous people. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to spoil it for people who haven't read the book yet. Yeah. And then later on in your adult life, you actually come very close to some people who I'm not going to spoil. Yeah. Of the celebrities that are still alive that you haven't met, who would you most like to meet and why? From, uh, from the sort of... Uh, watching Sky's era um Rich, Richard Dreyfus, uh who I just think's a fascinating fascinating soul and actor and sort of force of nature I wish we could see more of him um although he's doing some great sort of advocacy work for teaching and education at the moment um so Richard Dreyfus or John Williams uh next one Benjamin Walters asks oh in fact yes this is a Bond question Mark if Daniel Craig were to step down as Bond who would you most like to see replace him uh, oh, oh god it's like pick it's like sophie's choice pick your favorite star wars film and you can't watch any of the others ever again uh, I, I do think whoever it's going to be is someone really obvious that none of us have thought of i i i can't give one answer maybe henry cavill oh mark i as god is my witness that is my answer as well i think i've actually mentioned it on the podcast before it's got to be henry cavill yeah he's maybe not the strongest of actors superman doesn't it doesn't he sort of hides it a bit um and everyone says, oh, we can't do it because he's been Superman. And I think, no, Henry Cavill and the fact he was so close once, there may be something to hold on to there. Uh, he just looks great. I think we'll possibly, next time round, we, we will go with a possibly lighter tone. I don't, I'm not saying Pierce Brosnan or Roger Moore, but perhaps less internal, a less internal bond. There's lots of little the sort of side actors. I, uh, Dan Stevens. Um, yeah. He's a great one i've actually i've thrown a couple of names into the mix when i've been asked before um alexander skarsgård yeah just because I, I there's something physically about him I, yeah he's a little bit hot as well but he's um he's got that sort of european poise and sort yeah. of a model glamour to it, and he's a good actor which helps and i i i don't know this but i just wonder if some with that we might go big on the next bond in terms of casting and i'm I'm going to put Chris Hemsworth into the mix as well because I think he does a, he, he handles that sort of British idiom really well. 
Well, yeah, he obviously yeah, he played um, fantastically. He played James Hunt, didn't he, yeah. in uh, the Ron Howard film Rush? So, and, yeah, and Thor has a bit of he's sort of got some English affectations, and, yeah. and he's a good actor, and he, he's going to get it more interesting as he gets older and a bit more craggy as well. Uh, and he'll be the first actor that has to sort of beef down for the part as well, which yeah. could be amusing. Corey Wilkes asks, Mark, you're obviously a massive Star Wars fan, and in the book you mention Return of the Jedi being your favourite. Oh, yeah, you do. Um, but what is your least favourite Star Wars film and why? Ooh, ooh. Um, well, I don't hate down on the, the prequels as much as some can or do. I am still licking my wounds with Solo at the moment. Um, really? Yeah, I, I've got problems with Solo and I really didn't want to. And I've seen it twice now. I might go and see it again next week just to be sure. I think Solo is perhaps the least successfully structured of any Star Wars film, sadly, Solo or Attack of the Clones. Um, I don't, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't think Phantom Menace is that bad a film. It, it's, it's got things we don't like, but that doesn't mean it's a bad film. And actually, when you look at Phantom Menace alongside New Hope, they, they sort of enhance and change each other. And now, obviously, Solo, spoiler alert, has some linkage to Phantom Menace as one or two sort of pickups there. Um, but I, Solo, I, I wanted to like it so much, and I do like it, and I, I love its matinee swagger and sense of escapism. I, and I don't think its problems are because of a change of director. I feel there was something in that script or the story somewhere along the line where we start on, on one planet and he leaves his girl behind. So, oh, it's going to be like a last of the space Mohicans. He'll come back for her. She's going to be waiting under the sort of robot uh, waterfall. Great. And then, oh, no, no, she's he's going to go to war. Oh, and now he meets her at a cocktail party. And there's a lot of disconnect for me in Solo. I, and I, I really didn't want to, to come down on it. Um, it's so the disconnect is there. It doesn't know it's forever setting itself up. And that's a, that's actually a big flaw of a lot of big franchise cinema today. The Marvel films do it ad nauseum. They're, they're setting themselves up and, and sort of holding out little trinkets of what will be happening, but we, we rarely get what is happening. Uh, it's always down the line. You know, I don't, I'm getting a bit tired of waiting at the end of 10 minute uh, end credit sequences for, for, for sort of almost the juice of the film to be kept back to the end credits. And that, that's a Marvel f- thing and flaw. Um, for a character called Solo, he's very passive in the film. He doesn't, he's not solo that much. He doesn't have that. And it's nothing to do with uh, Alden Ironwreck being not Harrison Ford. I had no problem with them casting someone new. It's, it, we can't obviously have Harrison Ford pretending he's, you know, 25 still. Yeah, the sort of disconnect with his character. There's a really telling moment where um, we're in the Millennium Falcon cockpit and Han, Han Solo is flying it because I think Lando's just been injured. And Amelia um, Clark's character walks in and says, oh, every pilot needs his co-pilot. And she sits in the chair and Chewbacca sort of sat behind her. And there's not, there's not an acknowledgement or awareness that, and it's not even a clever awareness. It's just a, a wasted moment. If that should be Chewbacca, she should step up and say, Oh, no, you should sit here. You look like you know what you're doing. And also, I don't think she's well cast in that film. That's all I'll say about Amelia Clark. Possibly I'd have done it like Dirty Rotten Space Scoundrels, have a, an older sort of Kate Blanchett or Marianne Cotillard type character who they both land on hand full for, think she's naive and doesn't know what she's doing. But it turns out she's fleeced them both at the end. Um, because to pitch that this character is going to be his love of his life, and we know that's not true, is is on dodgy ground and if spoiler if your biggest surprise in the film is 
something from the Phantom Menace, then I think we've got a problem a little bit. And I don't like, I mean, let's, I'm going to go there. So if you haven't seen Solo, uh, shuffle forward by a minute or two, but to have Darth Maul pop up when we, we saw him being sliced in half and thrown down a, you know, a big chasm as a film viewer and as a Star Wars film fan and the book sort of honors the films, I, I, I don't care slightly that he was, you know, he held on and was reformed and he lived in in some spin-off novels and comic books. That that That's great, but that has to come to me as a viewer. So he's... I The element of surprise was re, was replaced with confusion at the end of Solo for me. And also... And the Woody Harrison character wasn't necessary. The Tandy Newton character was not used. And it wanted to be Rogue 2 or Rogue 1 2. I, I get that these disparate resistance rebels you know are scattered across the galaxy but i don't know if we keep needing to see them i would have had and this is just how i'd have done it i'd have had Enfy's nest when she pulls off that mask it's mon mothma or jimmy smith's and that that's they've been seeding the rebellion in other ways and they have to sort of work under or even a young layer just you know have more of a story arc there but that's me i still like i think the train chase is stunningly realized ron howard did a really good job in elongating that great train sequence and the the whole kessel run sequence but the film doesn't know where to end as well we, we shouldn't be bored by the moment han solo yeah. wins the falcon we shouldn't be oh can we get on please i want to go home that that shouldn't happen in a star wars film but it does in solo yeah our last episode um jim cottle steve and myself we we we, we reviewed the film and we were all very positive about it because um, I, I think certainly on the on, on the part of Jim and I, you were lifelong Star Wars films as you are. We are very much part of that pocket of Star Wars fans who didn't like The Last Jedi. That's putting it mildly. And I, th- I think we went into this film with such low expectations, especially with the fact that the trailer didn't exactly set us alight, that we were, I think, far more forgiving of the things that you've raised. And I, I do agree the Darth more thing didn't feel earned and it felt almost like as if it was shoehorned yeah. in as a little bit of um well far too much fan service i think yes yeah and yeah and that's and there's been a real sort of vociferous reaction to to solo from a, a certain brigade of fans where oh it didn't do this in that not so when you make a film when I, I will defend ryan johnson i i have defended ryan johnson i don't have many problems with the last jedi there's the canto bite stuff is I, li- I quite like it, but it's un- narratively unnecessary. As soon as they return, um, Laura Dern says, oh, actually, we've changed the plan. We're doing this now. So that's the thing. But I, for Ryan Johnson to end a Star Wars movie, and we don't know what the hell's going to happen next, I think that's quite a plus point. That's a sleight of hands that we don't get in big franchise movies anymore. There's, there's things about it I don't like, but I, um, yeah, I had no problem with Last Jedi overall. Okay, next one is... Jenna Hughes asks, Mark, this is very random, please settle or please help settle an ongoing argument with me and my dad. Mike Hodge's 1980 film, Flash Gordon, undisputed classic or load of rubbish? Undisputed rubbish. Um, no, 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 not at all. No, I love Flash Gordon. It, it's a great, it was, it was one of those films you'd rent because other ones weren't available and you wanted a bit of a Saturday afternoon sci-fi rental. So I would often... Flash Gordon would be my sort of default babysitter at the weekends. No, I love that film. I was in a gay bar in the middle of sort of San Francisco, the Redwoods, the north of San Francisco, and it came on in this gay bar. It was muted, but the whole film was just playing. And the the amount of, of guys from you know all walks of life who 
just stopped and looked at it and were in awe of this this very glossy but slightly clunky film. Uh, it's got great production design. It's got great swagger. It wants to be Star Wars. Of course it does. But I love it. I, I've got no problem with it. And it God, it's, it's a sci-fi movie with songs by Queen. What's what's not to like? Yeah, what's not to like? I'm, and the worst thing, Jenna, she doesn't even state which side she's on, if she's the one saying it's an undisputed classic or a load of rubbish. So, Jenna... Yeah. If you're listening, please send us a tweet or an email. I need to know which side of the, of the fence you're on with Flash Gordon. But yeah, I'm with you, Mark. It's, yeah. well, it's, there was... it's an absurd camp classic, but yeah. it, it doesn't take itself seriously. When you compare it to something like uh, Zardoz. Now, that film is from... You, you could look at it from yeah, some it's... angles. It's a ludicrous film, but it takes itself so seriously that that almost yeah. adds to the charm. Whereas Flash Gordon's completely the other way. It knows it's nonsense, and I think it fully embraces it. Yeah, there's a. I mean, that's an offshoot. It's a side industry of the, of Star Wars and the the impact and the momentum Star Wars gave cinema. So there's all these. I mean, I think there's a book there as well. Maybe I'll do it next. That all these curious sort of slightly Star Wars cash-ins like Flash Gordon, like Battle Beyond the Stars, The Cat from Outer Space is another one that I remember going to see because it was always just on re-release of a sort of half-term afternoon. All these films that want to be a bit Star Warsy, but end up being slightly bad Star Trek as well. They don't, they don't know they don't know how Star Wars works, so they become Star Trek-y. So, Mark, that's your next book. You can obviously Battle Beyond the Stars, Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, uh, Star Chaser, The Legend of Orion. That's an entire book for you to write about there, the things which came as in the wake of Star Wars. Yeah, Life Force. Yeah, absolutely. Watching Bad Skies. Oh, Life Force. Funny enough, yeah, that's, um, it was released oh, 20, Oh, sorry, 33 years ago today oh was it was that yeah. today's birthday we seem to be getting anniversaries every day yeah. now but oh yeah fair enough yeah that was the one that slightly sunk toby hooper i think yeah last question now our last listener question yeah christian Searle asks oh and this is one which i kept to last because it may be a long answer mark what is your favorite year of film and your favorite films from that year oh that's a good one uh i'm just going through it it depends because each year had a different like 82 yes that, that, that is the that is the textbook yeah, that answer is the one, is, that's yeah. the textbook answer so i'm yeah. going to try and give a better one but i'll start with 82 i mean 82 was quite a sci-fi year the thing et blade runner uh wrath of khan uh, wrath of khan uh list them all in the book but i can't can't see them now um uh, poltergeist yeah poltergeist I'm trying to think really bad. Was it The Boys in Blue, that Cannon and Ball film that oh, came yeah. out in 82? I was 83, I think. Uh, I shouldn't remember that. Oh. Um, so 82 was quite a sci-fi year. But then if you look at uh, 84, it was slightly, you know, you had Karate Kid, Ghostbusters, yeah. Gremlins, a bit more rooted in a sort of Americana mm-hmm. that was a bit more relatable. It wasn't so sci-fi. 77, you got Star Wars, Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. Uh, Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. That's Carry On. No. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, 80, I mean, 83 gave me Octopussy and Return of the Jedi, two films that slightly changed my life in parallel ways. Yeah. Um, within a week or two of each other as well, both came out and both have a Tarzan gag as well. Both, yes, both Roger Moore do. and an Ewok do a Tarzan reference. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of circling the 80s and 70s here. Um, but then the other years, I think sort of ninety. I remember those good films coming out in um, ninety five. Oh yeah, like uh, Heat, Apollo thirteen, Braveheart, Heat seven. Yeah, Usual Suspects, yeah, that was, Casino. That was a good, good era as well. Yeah. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah, year. so yeah, that's sort of that's some answers that when it should just be one. No, I'll I'll take nineteen eighty two as your default answer there, Mark. Yeah, fair enough. 
Yeah, so thank you everyone for those listener questions. There were a lot more, but I wanted to keep this to a sort of manageable time because I know, knew that me and Mark would have a lot to discuss. Uh, Mark, is there anything else you'd like to add now before we start to wrap things up? No, I think we've I've had a good run here. It's been a good chat. I appreciate the questions and the, the audience questions as well. They're good ones. Yeah, I, I just implore anyone who's a fan of the site, the podcast, and part of this or part of this generation, or just anyone who loves films, please seek out Mark's book. It's available everywhere where good books are sold, Amazon and the like. Sorry to plug, but you know it's probably the no, probably the, the the most e- you know the most easiest place people are going to get the book from. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's available in America from September, so we're getting an American release as well. So that's that's a good one because a lot of American readers have been asking. So that's happening in September. Yeah, please. It's I couldn't put it down. It invoked feelings of nostalgia in me that were I thought were long since buried. Uh, it's easily the most enjoyable book I've read in the last maybe five, maybe ten years. And thank oh, wow. you, thank, oh, no, I genuinely mean that, Mark. I'm definitely going to be reading your Bond book. And yeah, if I, I think you know, your idea for a, a a book about the tacky spin-off or, or, or copycat films that came in the wake of Star Wars. There's definitely going to be an audience out there for, for something like that. Yeah, thank absolutely. You, thank you very much, Mark, for coming on and, and giving us your time. It's been wonderful discussing things with you. If you ever want to come back on uh, to discuss anything film-related or TV-related, please drop me a, 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 an email or, or a message and we'll get something sorted. No, I will do, absolutely. As I say, thank you for inviting me. It's been a really good chat as well. It's, it's good to chat with people who get it, not just think they get it, because you know, your, your questions and the, the audience questions have been that they get it. And that's hopefully what the book, the book is, it's not just, it's not my memoir at all. I, I, I'm not that brash to suggest it should be, but it's, it's everyone's memoir. It's any, any, everyone that grew up with cinema at that time. And one other thing I just wanted to do, it, it's not really a thank you as much, but something that um, I, I'm really not really grateful for is the fact that you made me remember how terrified I used to be of the character of Zelda from Terrorhawks. Oh, God, I still am. That yeah. and the pigs, in, the pigs in Space, I still knew that that's something icky about Jim Henson's Pigs in Space. Yeah, yeah, Z- yeah Zelda and, and his, his sister with the, uh, the sort of bleach bob cut and ultimately yeah. they, you, you knew that they were... They, they Wouldn't they peel their faces off and be robots underneath? Yeah, and there was <sighs> there was a creepy nephew as well or some... Oh, some, yeah. Yeah, he was always... They, they just sort of looked like rotting corpses and all for sort of 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon on ITV. You sort of, yeah, it was... Yeah, definitely Zelda, even to this day. Yeah. So thank you very much, Mark. Um, it's been uh, fantastic discussing your book with you. Uh, I think our next episode, uh, we're going to have a two-parter. Uh, it's coming up to the 10th anniversary of a certain uh, DC Comics film. And we're going to be getting Hayden Spirell on from Film 89, who's uh, going to be making his Film 89 and podcast debut. And then I think after that, we're going to be having probably our second most requested audio commentary. So please stick with us for that. You can follow myself on Twitter at Sky Movies and on Facebook. You can follow the rest of the crew at Film 89 UK. Mark, where can people get hold of you if they want to chat to you? I'm on Twitter um, at Mark O'Connell, but the... Uh, o is a zero. I'm on uh, markoconnell.co.uk. Watching Skies is on Facebook. That's a, a good group. That Facebook, the Facebook page is where I'm sort of most current, and I put all the photos and things related to watching Skies. And also Catching Bullets has got its own page out there as well. Okay, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Please uh, like, subscribe, give us an iTunes rating, recommend us to a friend, get them to leave us an iTunes rating. The person in the next three months or so who gets the most recommendations, as we've discussed previously will be getting their own guest appearance on the podcast discussing the film and t- or TV show of their choice. 
So cheers, everyone. Thank you very much. Take care. And as usual, stay classy. Thank you.